morning, everyone. You all right? You're good? Uh, you are very welcome. I'm just going to call out my husband. He was unable to join us in the giving declaration because he had a mouthful of chocolates this morning. So I turned around and he's like, well, thank you, there we go, our best gift. With chocolate everywhere. Uh, so it's lovely to see you this morning. For those of you that haven't met me before, my name's Nick and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, when Richard started to speak then, I could feel myself moving down the chair slightly. But seeing as I'm talking today about our identity as living from a place of welcoming abundance in our life and being okay with being blessed, I'm going to just fake it till I make it this morning and say that this is all good by me. Uh, and thank you, Richard. That was precious what you were saying. We're really grateful. So we are in a new series of Who Am I? talking all about our identity. And Chris launched us off last week. He was talking about I am in Jesus. And he talked about the fact that our identity and our beliefs about who we are shape our behavior, shapes our decision making, shapes how we feel about ourselves, how we respond to others. And so it's so important that we know who we are and who God says we are. Because we live in a world where we're told we can choose who we want to be, that our identity is whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us feel great about ourselves, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But actually, when we live from a place of choosing our own identity and not the one that was created for us, we remove the creator from the equation. So if we are the masters of our own identity and destiny, then we have removed the creator. And I would suggest that's not a great idea, actually, in terms of how we live. So this was one of the things that Chris brought to us last week. Your identity determines your beliefs, which in turn determines your behavior. And we're going to be looking at a few things in this series. And Chris did I Am In Jesus, and this morning I am doing I Am forgiven. Now, you'll see that uh, you've all had something you're either sat on, stood on. Um, or there's a piece of paper that's available for all of you. If you don't have one, can you just give a little wave? And uh, Francis has got some uh, at the back. And if you've got ones next to you that aren't being used and someone's waving near you, can you go and dispatch them to people? That would be fantastic. If you're at home and joining us online, then uh, Becca, our amazing online host, is going to put the link for you so that you too can access the PDF of what we are going to be looking at today. Now, you can tell I'm a speech therapist, not a teacher, because I've given you a sheet of paper before we're ready to look at it, and now you're all looking at your sheet of paper. So do you know what? Have 20 seconds now to just have a little look and get it out your system, and then you can put it to one side for a minute. So just have a quick read through. It will give you the headlines of some of the things we're talking about. Don't worry if you don't understand the purpose of it right now. But just get it out your system so you can have a little read and then you can put it to one side um, just for a while. Okay, we will come back to it. Uh, I asked the lovely cat to proofread it for me yesterday. <laughs> At the end of it, she said, I feel like I've just been in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a lot to think about there and we won't be doing it all today. But if you can just put those to one side, that would be great. So just to be really clear as we launch into this, there are a thousand things that I could talk about forgiveness and about the importance of forgiving others and what the Bible says about forgiveness. But that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about knowing we are forgiven. They're they're different things, and one does definitely influence the other. But if you think you're here to hear about forgiveness in terms of you forgiving others, that's not it. This is about living from a knowledge and identity that you are forgiven and how that influences and impacts the way that you live and shapes your identity. Now, being forgiven means we need to have a quick understanding of what we need to be forgiven for. And the Bible talks about this as sin. And in its essence, sin is anything that interferes with love. There are many, many books and theologians that could tell you many more in-depth things, but I'm just going to narrow it to that. Sin is anything that interferes with love. And God's heart as a father is to connect with us deeply from a place of loving us and us loving him. And where there's stuff that gets in the way and it interferes with that love, that's sin. And it becomes like a barrier or a boundary to us being able to love God and being able to re- um, receive love from him. So God's solution from this, for this is forgiveness. That effectively where we do things, behave in certain ways, speak in certain ways that interferes with love, he announces forgiveness for that. Total utter, complete, irreversible forgiveness. Now, the lunacy of this is he does it in advance. It makes no sense in the natural that he basically, in advance of us doing, saying, doing anything that interferes with love, before he even knows what it is, he announces his forgiveness for us and says, it's done, it's finished. And the reason it's finished is because what happened when Jesus came is that he took on himself, a perfect person who'd never sinned, took upon himself all of our past sins, present sins, all the sins of the future on himself, and he took it into the grave, and those things died with him there once and for all. And when he came back to life, those things remained dead and in the grave. And so that's why we can be confident to know that whatever we have done or haven't done, will do or won't do, it is covered by Jesus going to the grave. So when we live from a place where our identity is not rooted in that being forgiven, we're actually hmm, being a little bit careful, which is quite unusual for me as any of you who know me. I think we're really dishonoring what Jesus did on the cross. I think it's actually an offense. When Jesus went through what he went through to take all of our stuff and sin and leave it in the grave, when we go back into the grave and start digging it all up and trying to bring it back into our identity now, I think it dishonors the very essence of what God did in sending Jesus. The stuff that's in the grave needs to stay dead. And the difficulty is we try and bring some of it back to life again because it shapes who we are and how we feel about ourselves. But this is what the Bible says about it. In Ephesians 1, seven, it says, Since we're now joined to Christ, we've been given the treasures of redemption by his blood. That means when he died, he took it into the grave. The total cancellation of our sins, 
all because of the cascading riches of his grace. Now, just a quick thing here. Mercy, when we talk about God's mercy, that means not getting what we deserve. So when God shows us mercy, it means we don't get what we deserve. But grace is we get what we don't deserve. He doesn't just stop at the point of not giving us the punishment in the way we deserve it. Grace is he lavishes on us stuff that we don't deserve. And that's the difference between those two things, his cascading grace. Another way of putting it is this. In Colossians 1:12, it says, Your hearts can soar with joyful gratitude when you think of how God made you worthy to receive the glorious inheritance freely given to us by living in the light. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. For in the Son, all our sins are cancelled, and we have the release of redemption through his blood. This is a once and for all thing, uh, announced in advance. So here's my question. I've been around church a long time, grew up in church, known Jesus pretty much all my life. It's an absolute privilege. So why is it then that I know I'm forgiven, but I can still feel really bad about myself? That's a question for all of us to consider. If we know God doesn't think we're bad, why do we feel so bad about ourselves? Unless it's just me. You're all sat very quietly. So unless you all feel great about yourselves all the time, and you're like, I'm amazing. If you feel confident to say that, good for you. I need to spend more time with you. However, why is it then, if we know we're forgiven, we can still have this gnawing, not enoughness, I've done too much, I've not done enough, I did that wrong, I feel really bad about that. Well, the reason I think that we can feel like that is this, which is, oh, hang on, not that. Go back, unless it's not there. Here, it's possible to change our knowledge and understanding without it making a change to how we live. I think it's totally possible to change our knowledge, but our heart and our identity hasn't changed. We can know God's forgiven me, God's forgiven me, God's forgiven me, and it has no impact on how we live because our heart and our belief in that, we don't live from that place. Someone would say, is God forgiven you? Yes. Do you feel forgiven? Do you live from a place of forgiven and enoughness? Oh, that's a very different thing, and that's what I want to try and hit today. And forgiveness is something that's quite easy to talk about. Are you forgiven? Yes. How do you know? The Bible tells me yes. Do you know who the hardest person is to forgive? I find yourself. Yourself. It's so much... I mean, it's not easy to forgive other people, let's be clear. Some people are just idiots sometimes. You know, there's like, it's really hard to like... <laughs> bit, bit honest? Um, I mean, seriously, like we're all around people sometimes and we're like, come on. And Jesus totally loves them, just to be clear. Jesus thinks they're great. You think they're a bit of an idiot, but Jesus thinks they're great. But forgiving yourself is much harder because you know. Even if you try and deny it, you know everything you've ever thought. You know everything you've ever said, even the stuff no one's heard you say. You know everything you've done, even the stuff no one else knows you've done. You know the times you wish you'd have done something and you didn't. 
You know all of those things and you can't unknow it. And that's why I think forgiving ourselves is so hard. But we have to start living from an identity of not how we feel, as Chris was saying, not what we believe about ourselves, but from the truth of who God says we are. And he's announced it once and for all, totally irreversibly. That's not who you are. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, there's a guy called Craig, I think it's Groeschel. Is that how you pronounce his name? Craig Groeschel. He talks about something which is not all guilt is equal. And he puts it into these categories. The first one he says is there's false guilt. Now, this is the type of guilt where actually it isn't your stuff, but you've assumed it is anyway. Things like your parents splitting up when you were a child. There are many children who take responsibility in some way, falsely, like, I wonder if that was something to do with me, if it's my fault. That's false guilt. Or something like, so for me, I didn't know I felt like this until years later, but my dad died when I was two months old. So I was a newborn baby, and he just met me, because they were living in Africa. I was born in London. And he'd met me, and a matter of days later, he died. And I hadn't realized I was carrying the guilt of, if I'd have been enough, he would have survived. But that came out in some therapy, some prayer, some time with God, where I realized I hadn't realized I'd been carrying that. But in my head, if I had been enough, surely that would have made him be enough to stick around. That's false guilt. I had absolutely no control over the disease in his body that meant that he died. And yet, unknowingly, unwittingly, I was carrying some false guilt around that I should have been able to make it better. And there are all kinds of things that other people do and decide and the ways that they choose that sometimes we take responsibility for. And it's not ours, it's their stuff. That's false guilt, it's not from God, and we have to let it go. Because it will hinder us and it is not, it's not there to help us grow, it's there to put weights around us and to keep us down. So we have to find a way of being able to separate ourselves from other people's choices and behavior. The second type that um, Craig Rochelle talks about is godly sorrow. And let me find it. There is a verse in 2 Corinthians 7.10, I think I've put it up here, which says, Godly sorrow brings repentance, which means a change of thinking, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, godly sorrow is when we sin, we do something that interferes with love, and actually, we have a feeling of, I just want, I don't want this to be in the way of love. I want to do it differently. I don't want to keep living from these patterns of behavior. It's not, it's actually a, a positive thing. Godly sorrow is a positive thing because it draws us into a place of change. It's actually, if I were to go and punch Chris in the face, for example, which I won't, <laughs> you're all right. Afterwards, if he then is there in pain and all the rest of it, I, I would have regret, which would be a good thing at that point because it would then help me not to punch him again. You understand? <laughs> the idea of if you have, a, it's a good thing. Sometimes we associate it's all guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Wish us luck for sabbatical, everyone. 
if Chris comes back with a black eye, you'll know that I'm still working on godly sorrow. So, godly sorrow is this thing which says, actually, I'm born for more than this. Actually, I'm destined for more than this. I'm behaving in a way that doesn't line up with what God created me for. It's interfering with love. It's messing up my relationships. And I want to change it. That's godly sorrow. It takes responsibility. It changes thinking and changes direction. And then it steps into a new future. That's what godly sorrow does. But it's very different from the third type which is shame. And shame is not of God. And shame is the devil's playground. This is the place where the enemy loves to whisper, not, I did something wrong, but you are wrong. Not, I made a mistake, you are a mistake. That is where all of that The guilt turns from godly sorrow of I'm born for more than this to there is something wrong with me. There is something wrong with me and if people only knew, if people knew, oh my gosh, could you imagine what they'd think of me? This is the devil whispering, your marriage is a mess and you know what? It's going to mark you for the rest of your life. It's never going to get any better. That thing you did all those years ago, you think you're over it, but you're never going to be free from that. You're always going to carry it around with you. It's always going to come with you. You can't take it back. That voice that whispers, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can just carry on living a lovely life when we all know what you did? Or we know what you didn't do. And look at what happened when you didn't do it. Then what happened? That's your fault. And other people might tell you it's not, but we all know it is. That shame is the devil's playground. He loves to get in our heads and tell us a different story from the one that God has written over your life and your identity. And I think it has a huge part to play in where we see people repeating negative patterns and cycles in their life. Because if you ever look into statistics around children and young people in care, people in prison, people who are repeat offenders, people in patterns of addiction, what you often find is it's shame that is keeping the cycle going because people say, this is always going to be like this. People are released from prison almost with the words of, see you soon. And even if it's not spoken, and I genuinely believe there are times when it is spoken, It's unspoken, but it's in the culture, which says, you honestly think you're going to make something of your life this time? Well, the last two times you didn't. And that's why we see repeat offending, that repeat sin, that repeat cycle of sin, because we somehow believe the voice that says, really, you know what you're like. If you can put it off as this long, we all know you're going to do it again next time. And actually, we just fall into the pattern of repeating and repeating. And one of the worst things about the concept of shame is there are still some people today that believe, many actually, that it's a good thing because it helps keep us in line. A healthy dose of shame. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. It's the equivalent of believing that sitting a child in the corner of a classroom with a dunce cap on is going to make their behavior change. (laughs) Oh, we'll show them. 
We'll show them, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to give them some time to sit in their shame and so that they can do better. But do you know what the research shows? The research shows that shame has the opposite effect. It clouds good judgment, it skews perception, and it drives people to destructive and unhealthy behavior. There is no such thing as a healthy dose of shame. Now, I've been doing a a course at the moment as part of my role as a foster carer and just some vision stuff that um, God is working through with me. And it's a course called Dealing with Shame by a lady called Betsy Dettiri, who has got a trauma recovery center. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in her, this is where these pieces of paper come in that you're going to look at. In the course, it talks about the behaviors associated with shame. And I'm just going to admit here. You may not be able to read the text, so that's okay. It basically talks about there are four types of behavior patterns we see when people are responding from a place of shame. The first one is withdrawal. So that's probably like the thing you would associate with shame. Head down, avoiding, hiding, not wanting to be around people because you feel bad about yourself or you don't want to be found out. That kind of avoidance behavior. The next type on the right is attacking yourself. This is you blame yourself and so then you engage in destructive behaviors towards yourself. In some way, you want to atone yourself for the behavior. You feel like, I deserve this. Sometimes that may look like self-harm. It might look like speaking badly about yourself. It may be involved in escapist behaviors and those kind of things or numbing with drug taking or alcohol, that sort of stuff. Then you've got avoidance. Avoidance is another type of behavior that people have in shame. It's like, do you know what? The way I'm not going to be pulled back into that again is I'm just going to stick my fingers in my ears. (laughs) That's what avoidance is. Withdrawal is I'm running away. Avoidance is I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Except I am drinking quite a lot and I am avoiding speaking to people that I really like and love that will see these behaviors in me. But I'm fine. I'm totally fine. <laughs> There's like a ha around the room at the moment. We're all fine, right? Everyone's fine. I'm fine. Are you fine? We're all fine. And then the last one is attacking others. And when people are in a place of shame, they often attack others because they need other people to feel like them because then it makes them feel better. And actually, if you've ever worked with children and young people who are wrestling with shame, shame, not shame. No, no one's wrestling with you, Shane. It's okay. No, so <laughs> Shane's like, what did I do? I know. <laughs> shame, to be clear. All shame, not shame. A healthy dose of shame. Yes, you can have one of those. So attacking other people, I've definitely seen this as a, um, as a foster carer. It is the case, if you place a child or young person or adult who is, has an identity based in shame next to an authority figure, you'll see it go up. You'll see it go up. You put a police officer, a teacher, a parent, you know, a boss, and you want to see what shame looks like, It doesn't look like, I'm so sorry, I feel bad about myself. It looks like throwing things, punching things, shouting abuse, that kind of stuff. Because actually, what happens is, shame drives you to want to bring people down to your level because then you feel better about yourself. So you take the people in authority and you bring them down because then you can think, whew, there's not this anymore. You're not pulling me down. You're not above me. I'm pulling you down to my level. 
So shame can look like being aggressive and attacking other people. So what I want you to do is on those sheets of paper you've got in front of you, you've got some of the behaviors that are associated with shame, and then you've got some of the behaviors associated with knowing you're forgiven. And what I want you to do, if you've got a pen, you don't have to do this exercise now if you want to take it away, but you could do a couple. I want you to make a mark on the line. I did this a while back with a different um, example. So, for example, things like I need to prove my worth through my behavior versus I know my value is not determined by my behavior. I want you to make a mark somewhere on the line. So if you feel like you're totally like an approval junkie, you need to like approve, 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 put your line over this side. But if you know, do you know what? I never look for other people's approval. I know I'm okay. Then put it over the other side, okay? There's some really interesting ones when Richard was up talking about um, sabbatical and blessing. I feel bad when great things happen to me or people give me things freely versus I welcome abundance and blessing in my life. So um, I'm a work in progress on that one. I feel uncomfortable when people compliment me or I welcome compliments and people speaking well of me. You can see why Kat felt she was in therapy reading some of these yesterday. So I'm going to give you... Three or four minutes to have a go at some of those. And then if you're at home, have a look at them. And then I'm going to come back and wrap up what we do about moving into a place of knowing we are forgiven rather than knowing we're ashamed.
Okay, just take a few more seconds to do the one that you're on. Maybe you're a professional apologizer. I love that one. You say sorry just for breathing near people. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Okay, so depending on where you've put yourself on that scale, what do we do? Like, this is, like what do we do about this? If you feel that, do you know what? I feel like I probably am living from a, a place and an identity that knows I'm forgiven but doesn't know I'm forgiven. I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm forgiven, and yet... I live with an imposter syndrome. I live with a place of not wanting to be exposed, found out. I fear what people think of me. What do we do about that? Well, I love, there's a quote from um, Brene Brown, who is a researcher of shame. She's wonderful. And she says this, and it's so powerful. She said, I wanted God to work like an epidural, to numb the pain of vulnerability. As it turned out, God ended up being more like a midwife. A nurturing partner who leans into the discomfort with me and whispers, push and breathe. God doesn't take away the pain and discomfort. He says, I'll sit with you in it. I'm going to say that again. She says, I wanted God to work like an epidural to numb the pain of vulnerability. As it turned out, God ended up being more like a midwife. A nurturing partner who leans into this discomfort with me and whispers, push, breathe. God doesn't take away the pain and discomfort. He says, I'll sit with you in it. If we want to get breakthrough in this area, we have to choose vulnerability. Shame thrives on silence and secrecy. It is fuel it is fuel for shame. If you feel ashamed, like mustn't let anyone see, mustn't let anyone know, mustn't tell people how I really feel. It, it's like fuel. But when we stop keeping it secret and we expose it and we choose vulnerability with trusted people, with God, through prayer, through relationships, that's where we get breakthrough. We get breakthrough because we don't just have to believe it by striving. We get to believe it because we're part of a community and in a relationship with a father who says, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. So practically, how can you do that? Well, one of the ways is declaring things. So the power of life and death is in the tongue. The Bible tells us this. The tongue is like the rudder for the ship. What we say is very, very powerful. I've said it many, many times before. There's a brilliant experiment where they got um, some plants and they basically got someone to go in and basically speak life over these plants, literally speak words over these plants. And then there was another set of plants where people literally spoke death <laughs> over the plants. And you may feel like, oh, come on, Nick. But guess what happened? The plants, this is a message for the gardeners, speak nicely to your plants. The plants that actually thrived and they grew were the ones where words of life had been spoken over them. And the plants where death had been spoken over them died and withered and didn't do so well. There is literal power in what you say. 
That's why it's so careful that we choose our words that we say about people and about ourselves. Oh, I'm such an idiot. (laughs) I know I called people idiots earlier. Obviously, it wasn't a specific person. But, oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, I've done it again. What is wrong with me? Oh, I'm just always going to be like this. I'm such a failure. Oh, I'm so thick. I'm rubbish at this. The words you say can really shape your identity. So why not take away this sheet of paper and what, what about if you took some of these and every day you spoke them out, you declared them, you declared these things over yourself. I learned from the past, but I'm focused on my present and future choices. I welcome compliments and people speaking well of me. I know I'm fully acceptable and lovable as I am. I'm comfortable sharing my strengths and weaknesses with others openly. My emotions don't define how I treat people who have wronged me. I know who I am and I speak and behave in a consistent way irrespective of what other people think of me. Actually use these as tools to declare the God-given identity over you, not the identity that the enemy is whispering in your ear. Rubbish, useless. If only people knew. The other thing is get in community. Yes, we love Sundays. This is not a very easy place to be vulnerable always. Relationships are an easier place to be vulnerable. It's still hard. Relationships are an easier place to be vulnerable. Do it in smaller places. Find trusted people that can point you to Jesus. And when you're like running this way, they're like, no, 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 no. And they're running you back over here. When you're ashamed, don't run from God. Run to God. When you feel like I've really screwed up, I definitely can't go to church. Come to church. When you feel like I feel so bad about myself, I can't pray because I feel like I'm going to walk into God's presence and God's going to go, oh, here you are. Then we've got to have words, haven't we? That's not what he does. When you've messed up or you feel bad about yourself, he's like, welcome home. Come sit with me. But we can't do this alone. We literally can't do it alone. You need people and you need Jesus. It has to be both. And that's how we set an identity of who we are. So let's stand and I'm going to pray as we finish. I'm going to encourage you to think of something that you're holding on to, a choice or a decision that you made... Or, and I particularly felt God wanted to highlight this morning, there are people here who are carrying the shame of something they didn't do. I think it's quite obvious when we talk about making mistakes or screwing up sometimes, we think of something we did. But I particularly feel Holy Spirit is saying, there are things people feel like they should have said or should have done, and they didn't, and they've, they're carrying the guilt and the shame of that. I want you to just picture something you know has a hold on you rather than you've got a hold on it. And I want you to ask Holy Spirit to take it away. Let it go. Let it go. Holy Spirit, we come to you with wide open hearts and minds today and we say you can have the deepest parts of us, the bits we don't want anyone else to see, and we know that you look on them and you say, let me take that from you because I have something to give you in return. I have cascading grace to give you in return, total and utter forgiveness to give you in return. 
Help us to become a family of people that see transformation in this house and in this community, but in Ashford and beyond, because we've become a people that live from a place of knowing we're forgiven. And that we get to shape our identity based on what you say about us, not what others or ourselves say about us. Do it in us, we ask. And encourage you just out loud, if you feel able to, say, do it in me, Jesus. 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 Give him permission. Do it in me, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you say you'll never leave us incomplete or incomplete. You'll keep with us until we reach these places we're aiming for. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Numa Sunday's podcast. For more information, go to numachurch.uk where you can find more ways to connect with us. Have a great week and remember you're loved.